Morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a Black Arts and Cultural Program with African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we are we always have choices. We are never victims, so we should take a breath and look around, particularly looking within, and see what our options are and act accordingly. We are really excited to be having a special broadcast this morning uh, featuring two African-American women scholars, uh, Cheryl Finley. Uh, Good morning, Cheryl. How are you? I'm really well, Wanda. Thank you so much for having us on today. Oh, you're welcome. And Dr. Um, Lee Rayford, um, are you with us too? Are you together on the same line? Oh, no. There she is right there. Good morning, Dr. Rayford. How are you? Good morning. Doing well, thank you, Wanda. Thank you so much for having us. Oh yeah, thank you for for joining us. Um, considering your body's not in this time zone yet, so really appreciate it. Um, oh no, I'm, you're, you're, uh, yeah, you know. I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> super, super. Yeah, yeah. It's not every every day that you know we have um, two black women scholars on the air at the same time to talk about their work. Um, you know, this really wonderful exhibit uh, of all things loved, blackness, and belonging at the Berkeley Art Museum Pacific Film Archive presently through, um, what's the um, the exhibit, is, what are the dates? Um, it closes July 21st, um, so it's a pretty, it's a fairly short run, um, but we're really excited about um, that it's at We've had the opportunity to be at Berkeley Art Museum, and um, there's been a really good response so far. We're so glad you came through, mm-hmm. Lana. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate you know the special um, you know tour, and um, you know it's a really wonderful exhibit because it's um, curated by by students of yours and your colleague, and yeah, uh, and there are some uh, guided tours uh, about things love, blackness, and belonging. Um, you know, pretty you know pretty extensive i mean like if you want a tour you probably can get one and and then next wednesday june 19th at noon there's a screening and discussion welcome to the neighborhood uh celebration of juneteenth with a short documentary exploring um mildred howard's family roots in the bay area and the impact of gentrification followed by a conversation with uh, Ms. howard who is oh my goodness she is so esteemed and so wonderful and uh yeah and then you're going to have um another 
I guess before closing on Saturday, July 13th from 11.30 to 1 and 1 to 2.30, you're going to have gallery, studio, finding form and space in black abstraction. Maybe you could talk a little bit yeah. about that um, a little bit later. And, um, and Cheryl, oh, my goodness, uh, we had you on earlier this year, like really earlier this year, um, to talk about the heritage, uh, African-American uh, social history, um, the featuring Say It Loud, the John Silverstein collection, and you were on with the collector and the uh, Heritage House um, uh, curator of this wonderful collection, and I was tuned in, and I didn't get anything, but it was still fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear the yeah. Other things were were taken up at that auction. Mhm. Yeah, it was really awesome. And you wrote a really wonderful essay for the catalog, and and then your book, Committed to Memory: The Art of the Slave Ship Icon. Oh my goodness, it is. Wow, it's so well done, so well written, and it was really great, you know, to to see all three of you um, with. Um, uh, I'm drawing a blank on our artist. Uh, Andrew name, Wilson, who was on. Right, right. Um, yeah. Mhm. Yeah, who was on the uh on the panel with you at the Museum of the African Diaspora to talk about just this um you know, this slave ship icon and you moderated um uh Dr. Uh, Rayford. How do you pronounce yeah. your first name? Lee. Lee, okay, cool. So, um I um was gonna read a little bit of both of your bios and then we could just start talking about um yeah, how you all met and what brings you to the work and your particular work that we just mentioned um, just now in my rambling kind of bio conversation. <laughs> so, um, so um, Lee, we'll start with you first, and then Cheryl, I'll read sure. yours. Okay. And I'm just pulling it from uh, African American Studies and African Diaspora Studies uh, from UC Berkeley. Um, that's where I'm reading from. If you're listening, you can okay. go and read along with me because I'm not going to read at all. <laughs> Talking Please to our don't. listening audience. Yeah, but you teach some really interesting classes. Maybe you could talk about that too. Um, you are sure. as associate professor and H. Michael and uh, Jean Williams Chair of African American Studies at the University of California, Berkeley, where you also serve as affiliate faculty in the program in African, excuse me, in American Studies and the Department of Gender and Women's Studies. You received your Ph.D. from Yale University, uh, Yale University's joint program in African-American studies and American studies in 2003. Before arriving at UC Berkeley in 2004, you were the Woodrow Wilson postdoctoral fellow at Duke University's John, Ho John Hope Franklin's uh, Center for Interdisciplinary and International Studies. You are the recipient of fellowships and awards from the American Council of Learned Societies, the Ford Foundation, the Mellon Foundation, the Woodrow Wilson Foundation, and the Hel Hel Hellman <laughs> Family Foundation. And you've also been a Fulbright Senior Specialist. Yes. Oh, what does that mean? Um, it just means it meant that I got to teach um, courses at um, German universities and French universities mm. for a period of about two weeks to a month each time. Mm -hmm. It's pretty great. It's a, it's a really great short-term exchange program for professors. 
Oh, nice, nice, yeah. And you are the author of Imprisoned in a Luminous Glare, Photography and the African-American Freedom Struggle. Uh, that's University of North Carolina Press 2011, which was a finalist for the Berkshire Conference of Women Historians Best Book Prize. Congratulations. Nice. Thank you. Sure. And you are co-editor with um, uh, Hinke? Heike. Heike Raphael, Raphael Hernandez. Mm-hmm. Okay. Heike uh, Raphael Hernandez of Migrating the Black Body, Visual Culture in the African Diaspora, and that's University of Washington Press 2017. And that's sort of um, sort of real in concert with um, your work, uh, Cheryl, um, sort of, it sounds like it anyway. <laughs> the visual well, culture. Well, actually a really big part of um, migrating the black body and has extended. Oh. Um, so, well, I guess I should—I don't know if you want to do the larger introduction, yeah. but Cheryl and I have known each other for a very long time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I definitely think <laughs> of Cheryl as one of my most important intellectual interlocutors. Mm-hmm. And you're my sister, Lee. <laughs> so we, we've known each other since graduate school and we were both in the same class in African-American studies and it was an interdisciplinary program at Yale. We were in the second class of students to be admitted into the interdisciplinary PhD and my second mm-hmm. department was art history whereas Lee's was in American studies and I always mm-hmm. felt I think I've articulated this to you, Lee, that I always felt like I was an interloper or a wannabe in American studies. <laughs> and so, um, but yeah, we've known each other for a long time and we've had lots of really great opportunities to collaborate. And um, and I would agree that in, in terms of our intellectual work, we, are, um, we, we have, I think, a very symbiotic relationship and interest in in, in many things um, related to the black diaspora through visual culture and especially through photography and film. And, um, and in terms of the, the work um, in Committed to Memory, um, there are many mm-hmm. ways, as you can imagine, Wanda, when young scholars are coming up with ideas and formulating new projects that mm-hmm. their friends and colleagues um, help them out, sometimes in ways where they don't really even realize how important and impactful their contributions have been. And I, I want to just, you know, again, say a shout out to, to you, Lee, for being one of those people that's been so instrumental in, in helping this project, not only in terms of its shape and form, but also in its ability to finally come to fruition. I mean, Cheryl, mm-hmm. I've learned so much from mm-hmm. you over the years. I mean, you're also, I also want to to shout Cheryl out for when we were at Yale. Um, Cheryl was a founder was the founder of um, a really important working group called the Photographic Memory Workshop, and it brought like all of her, um, you know, all of her knowledge and experience as a uh, as a pho- photography appraiser and a photo historian. Um, but are really getting us to think through these questions about memory and what does, you know, what, what's the relationship between memory and photography? And, you know, and that was just immeasurably important for how I was thinking about so, black social movement photography and civil rights mm-hmm. movement and black power. Um, but um, so to see, to be able to be in conversation at the Museum of the African Diaspora 
with Cheryl about her book, um, you know, in the last, this um, last month was, it just felt like so many things had come full circle. It really did. It really did. And to have Andrew there and to have been mm-hmm. introduced uh, to him um, through, through his work. He is a, um, an artist who's, he's based in Berkeley, right, Lee? Uh, Berkeley, Richmond, yes, East Bay. Yes, Berkeley, Richmond, um, whom I, I met through um, this evening conversation, uh, but he has been for some time uh, been working with the schematic of the slave ship icon in his work, which encompasses textile design, fashion design, jewelry, and other um, craft-based processes using fibers and, and metals. And I was just blown away, not only by the designed T-shirt that he wore that evening, displaying mm-hmm. his, um, his, his artistry and, and his vision, but also in the way that he was able to um, speak uh, to the image and to the way in which he, through his work, is reclaiming it. Um, I was just really, really uh, excited about that opportunity. And I know that you've worked with Andrew in the past, too, right, Lee? He did um, very briefly. I mean, he was um, he, he took part in a course I taught a couple of years ago, um, but it was you know as he was finishing his his MFA thesis at UC Berkeley, which was um, in part was the fruit um, exhibition where he was creating the textiles, creating the work, and then created this fashion show um, and processional that went along with it. Um, but he is he's you know. Um, what's so exciting too, I think, is this the space between um, African American studies, art history, visual culture, um, Black history, Black diasporic history. Um, you know that people come; they bring so many skills and so much, so many ideas to to really thinking through, representing, um, and revisiting you know, our history. Um, and I think Andrew is, it, it was just a really great conversation to see the way that, um, particularly for this younger, younger emerging artist, um, how resonant the slave ship icon remains for him um, and how vital it is to his own practice. Mm-hmm. Right. Sorry, Wanda, have we hijacked you? <laughs> No, no, this is great because actually I had my first thought was, why don't I just let them introduce themselves? Because you know, because <laughs> you you know you all are such great friends, and and then it's like, well, let me just do it the way I normally do it. And so no, no, I, this this was the plan anyway. Okay. So yeah, it worked out okay. great. <laughs> yeah. Can we? Can I just add one more thing that relates to one of the the questions that you asked? Um, Lee, that kind of turned mm-hmm. us uh, into into talking back and forth about about some yes, of our yeah certainly um, we uh, today are in the process of hopefully finalizing and finishing an article with our friend and colleague who's based in Würzburg in Germany Heike Raphael Hernandez who's a scholar of oh. American mm-hmm. studies whom uh, Lee met uh, when she was visiting at Berkeley some years ago. And um, she's the co-author on uh, Migrating the Black Body with Lee. And also mm-hmm. um, she and I and, and Lee together 
um, were the recipients of a, an American Council of Learned Societies a collaborative faculty grant that enabled us um, that enabled us to work together over the period of uh, two. I would say it's now going on three years, right, Lee? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Years. Yeah, on on black women and, and migration in um, in visual art, in contemporary visual art, and it took us to um, conferences in uh, Mainz in Germany, um, but also uh, to do some research in, in Dakar at Dakar in uh, 2016, the the um, exhibition of contemporary African art um, in Senegal, and um, it's an extension of the work that Lee and Haiga began for a conference that they planned at the Volkswagen, the VW Foundation in Hanover, Germany in 2015 um, that was sort of the, the crystal for uh, the ultimate production of Migrating the, the Black Body. And this coming July, we're embarking on um, another collaboration uh, with the generosity of the VW Foundation um, at their uh, residence in Hanover um, for another project um, that we're going to be doing together with uh, contemporary artists uh, from the diaspora globally, coming from Africa, from uh, Brazil, uh, the U.S., and also parts of Europe. So we're we're excited, and I think if if you don't mind me speaking for you, Lee, one of the things that we no, please do well together, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> that we do well together, that, and, and that we like to do is to to have the chance to collaborate and to think not only. Um, you know, within and across our disciplines, but to be able to work together. And I think in the end, it always um, ends up being a, you know, a a much more um, accessible uh, finished Mm -hmm. product. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. And, and I, and I just want to mention just sort of the round out um, your bio, um, Cheryl, is that um, you, you are at a, Cornell um, University presently, and you are the Associate Professor of Art History. Um, you are um, an Associate Professor of Art History, and you hold a Ph.D. in African American Studies and History and of Art from Yale, and you have over 20 years of award-winning research in, on historic and contemporary images of the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, your seminal study, Committed to Memory, which we're going to speak about today, and we are speaking about the art of the slave ship icon, uh, is available from Princeton University. The monograph is the first in-depth study of the most famous image associated with the memory of slavery, uh, a schematic engraving of a packed slave ship hold in the art, architecture, poetry, and film. It has inspired since its creation in Britain in 1788. Another of your works, also published this year, um, uh, I guess last year, <laughs> was My Soul Has Grown Deep, Black Art from the American South, that's Yale University Press 2018. And it accompanies the exhibition History Refused to Die, highlights from the Souls Grown Deep Foundation at the Metro- Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York through September 23rd, 2018. Um, and you've got a whole lot more people can visit you, your bio online. Um, but I wonder if we could just jump into the work now. We could talk about, you know, the exhibit um, that your students uh, curated, Lee, and um, oh, sure. uh, and the whole idea of just the whole idea of we're talking about memory, right? And we're thinking about the memory is black people, you know, enslaved, and that is not the that is not the only reality about 
people of African mm-hmm. descent, but that is the main one here in the West. You know, and we, when children go to school still when they're studying history, that's all that comes up for when you do a search on <laughs> on what they're learning about themselves. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then we think about, you know, the whole idea of, of love and memory mm-hmm. and belonging and place, and we think about, okay, well, how do we document this in museums, right? Like so, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, they have that exhibition currently um, just sort of, uh, critiquing the idea of collection and what you know things get collected, but things that are collected are sometimes things are collected to pull them out of circulation, not necessarily to display. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, yeah, just mm-hmm. sort of your thoughts around around this, you know, the work that you have done and are doing. Sure. Um, so the the exhibition about things, love, blackness, and belonging. Um, it emerged from a, a co-taught class um, with my colleague Lauren Croys at UC Berkeley, um, and it was funded uh, by the Mellon Foundation, which wants to sort of have two purposes: one, to um, teach students um, hands-on kind of curatorial uh, work and practice, um, but also the Mellon Foundation has recognized how um, really just how white the field of museum, the museum profession is. And, you know, and we've seen that, and I know Cheryl can talk about this pretty extensively because this is um, part of her next project as well. Um, but we know that museum collections themselves are, um, you know, predominantly uh, white male artists. There are very few women, let alone women of color. Um, there are very few black people and people of color working as curators in museums um, or let alone running museums. Um, and that has obviously reflects reflect in the kinds of shows, um, exhibits that um, museums put on as well as in the way um, black folks feel um, that they do or don't belong within the museum setting. And it was, you know, it's, um, so part of, as we were thinking, our students were thinking through the, um, what the show might be. We started uh, last August planning this, um, you know, not just thinking about, um, you know, how might we think about broad themes of exile, migration, diaspora, um, but how can we, um, and how can we show work in the Berkeley Art Collections that it hasn't, haven't been seen. The Berkeley Art Museum um, has actually a really, some really amazing works by very well-known African-American artists from Romeo Bearden to Carrie Mae Weems to Lorna Simpson, Fred Wilson, um, and, uh, uh, and others. Um, but also how can we make the museum a more welcoming, welcoming place to, um, to, to our surrounding community, to black community, um, black community in the Bay Area, and also on campus. Um, so, you know, we met with black faculty and uh, staff organizations. We met with uh, African-American students, Office of African-American Student Development. And, you know, we found that a lot of black staff, for example, um, had never gone to the Berkeley Art Museum. Um, they didn't feel welcome there. Or they didn't feel it spoke to them. 
Um, and, you know, even though it's museum admission is free with a, you know, a Berkeley ID, right? Um, mm -hmm. So this, this became part of the thinking around the show. And so largely the question is how does, you know, for us is how does, how, what are the many ways in which blackness and black people, black culture um, have been made to, what ways do they belong to the museum or can they belong in the museum? Um, and so that, that became, um, that was sort of the guiding question for the show. And you know, we, the students um, explore that in five sections, thinking about the, the different ways that blackness, um, blackness belongs within the so museum. One of the things, I was going to say, one of the things that you, you point out, Lee, um, when, you, <laughs> when you just mentioned some of the the sections of the exhibition, this idea of belonging and your discussion with students and faculty and the fact that students hadn't really gone to the museum, even though that it's free. I think that part of this larger issue that your exhibition is exploring and part of mm -hmm. the larger issue that the Mellon study pointed out in 2015 is that it's not just about the fact that many of these institutions don't have black museum directors, don't have black curators, don't have black registrars, don't exhibit mm -hmm. works by black artists and don't have them in their collections. It's also that people who live right in the neighborhoods where these museums are don't feel welcome because there isn't anything in the museum that looks like them, that makes them That's right. want to come into the museum. So I, I just want to, again, applaud you and your students for for you know, taking this head on at, at the university. And I really hope that it leads to not just one exhibition, but also a series of exhibitions that helps to bring out some of these many works that are there and available um, for people to actually see, but that haven't seen um, the light of day for some time. Yeah, thank you. Yes, I mean that was that was I think also what was so surprising for so many of us for us as well was you know, I think a lot of us expected that the museum wouldn't have, that the collection would be, you know, really limited, that we wouldn't have a lot to work with, right, as we um, were curating a show exclusively out of Berkeley's um, permanent collections. Um, but I think what, what we found instead was that there was, there's actually, a, you know, a, a, a sizable, um, a sizable collection, but mm -hmm. but also it's the work of imagining different narratives um, and what kind of stories can we bring to, and structures can we bring to the museum gallery that make this work legible and visible. So thinking about um, you know histories of of the transatlantic slave trade, um, thinking about the history of um, you know history of, of abstraction uh, and how artist, black artists working in the vein of abstraction um, are maybe only re re until recently getting a kind of framework in which their, their contribution to the history of abstract expressionism um, can be understood. Um, so there's all sorts of, I think, you know, thinking also more expansively and imaginatively about what kind, what it means for black, um, black curators, black professionals, 
um, or people who are in our and their allies to tell these kinds of stories. Right. And can I interject? Mm-hmm. Um, I just I got an email from um, uh, one one of my my dearest uh, friends um, and scholars that we've all collaborated with, uh, Lee from Dr. Deborah Willis. Yeah. So the, it was it was an article from Hyperallergic that was sent to her from another one of our collaborators, and it was on this very topic about representation. Um, and hmm. the, the headline of the article is: Artists in 18 major U.S. museums are 85% white and 87% male. Study says, and so this is a study that was conducted by scholars at Williams College, um, along with. Um, uh, um, Stephen Nelson, who's at uh, UC mm-hmm. uh, and, um, and in this study, which had uh, you know, a number of um, rigorous metrics applied, um, they said um, that it paints a somber picture of the lack of parity in museum collections. The study found that 85.4% of the works in the collections of all major U.S. museums belong to white artists, and 87.4% are by men. African-American artists have the lowest share with just 1.2% of the work. Asian artists total 9% and Hispanic and Latino artists constitute 2.8% of the artists. And it also goes on to mention the, um, how you know, this particular study follows up on um, other recent studies, including the one that was conducted by the Mellon Foundation that you, um, that you mentioned, Lee, and that I think is you know, really the, the jumping off point for the initiatives that they've had recently in um, trying to diversify um, the museum professions. And that study took place in, um, in 2015. And just a, a quote from that um, that's published here in the article says, quote, while previous work has investigated the demographic diversity of museum staff and visitors, the diversity of artists in their collections has remained unreported, end quote. So um, again, I think it's just so exciting um, that you and your students have have you know taken this head on at, at Berkeley. Um, Thanks. It, uh, oh, go ahead. No, go on. No, I was just going to say. I mean, I think what also you know I came to to curating and frankly to art history, the history of art, kind of side through this side door, right? And thinking about hmm. black stories and black narratives and what that means to represent those visually. And one of the things that I think is so powerful about Cheryl's work about, and particularly about Committed to Memory, is that it gives us, to me, I feel like it it offers this, a little bit of a, I don't want to say rewriting, but a new lens through which to understand Black people's engagement with Art history and 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 with with our history, um, and so I mean the, the because the book starts, you know, in the late 1700s with this schematic that was you know deeply invested in um, transforming the transatlantic slave trade, um, whether abolishing the slave trade and eventually abolishing slavery, um, and then thinking about how generations of black artists and their allies has um, returned to this image over and over again 
show really provides us a different kind of narrative of art history. And I think that that's, you know, I think it's a way also in which, um, you know, different people can see themselves and their histories reflected, again, within, within art history as a discipline, um, but also within the museum, museum in, itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, um, <laughs> it's funny, sometimes, you know how it is, you get so close to things, it's hard to really see what, what they do, or, or you never know when you release a book into the world what it's, what it's capable of doing or what it already has done, um, especially mm-hmm. one that, that, that seemed to, it took, it took a long time to write, you know, right. to bring the world. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering, um, yeah, I'm really, really happy, Lee, that you spoke about what brought you to the work. And um, I want to let our audience know that um, that the exhibit um, that, that we're speaking of presently um, about things, love, blackness, and belonging um, is, uh, again, divided into five areas. The areas are roots and root, roots and roots. <laughs> or routes, um, R-O-O-T-S and R-O-U-T-E-S, so it's kind of cool, um, blackness as be, as belonging, and then on collecting and belonging, uh, embodiment and materiality, abstraction, and then on blackness and belonging. So as you walk through the, um, the exhibition, these particular um, topics are like organizing, your art is organized around these particular themes, um, Connected to the overall theme, and um, and and it's really the the artists that um, are represented, you know, are are pretty phenomenal. And then there are some artists that um, one hasn't seen in a while. Um, the work, so it's great mm-hmm. that they're being sort of excavated, so to speak. And and one of the I really like uh, maybe you could speak to it as well, um, Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, after Cheryl has a chance to talk a little bit about her book, but you know the mission statement where where you look at sort of uh, decolonizing institutions and mm-hmm. and you know and liberating voices that are in you know in the basement you know or attic or mm-hmm. story spaces mm-hmm. of these places, so we do exist, but then you know mm-hmm. once again the, you know these particular this art is not circulating it's not being mm-hmm. uh shown anywhere and a lot of times it might be the only one of something which means that if it's not mm-hmm. being shown and no one knows it exists then how can someone borrow it to show in another uh institution mm-hmm. so it's like hmm, just like taking black folks work out of circulation completely is that is that sort of like um sort well, of a like way to disappear us Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. I, I would say it's like it's being held hostage and I so I just yeah. um, we're all yeah. in, in, in in different time zones and uh, and I know I saw you <laughs> you the both of you what was it, not even two weeks ago probably. Mm-hmm. Um that, mm-hmm. we, that yeah. I was there, but I've since been um in in it was just returned from Paris and from from London um, on a, mm. a tour with students from Spelman College, where I'll be teaching in, mm. in the fall and leading a new program in art history and curatorial studies. But one of the things mm. that that we were talking about is this very issue, Wanda, in the um, with curators like Zoe Whitley and mm-hmm. um, who's at the Hayward Gallery in London and 
Mark Feely, who's at Autograph um, in London, mm-hmm. and also um, the curator um, Denise Morell, uh, who uh, curated an exhibition that's currently on view in, in Paris at the Musée d'Orsay called Les Modèles Noirs, um, which was the topic of her PhD thesis at Columbia, where she looked at um, all of the really important Impressionist paintings um, from France from the 19th century and noticed how there were um, frequently um, pictured in these paintings images of black men and women uh, models in the painting, and they were often never identified. And even if it were a portrait of mm-hmm. one of the individuals themselves, they weren't named. They were just a uh, black mm-hmm. person wearing a turban or something like that. Mm-hmm. And what she ended up doing right. was this really groundbreaking and phenomenal exhibition, which I think um, really aligns very well with what you've done at Berkeley, Lee, is she's gone in and done the research to find out who these people were, where mm-hmm. they lived, and what mm-hmm. their names were, and identified them and brought them together with a number of works in the exhibition. But one of the other things I wanted to say, too, is that I've been working on a project called um, The Light of Day, which is a new exhibition slash book project that is about this very topic that, you know, one of the images for in my book, which is on the cover, a work by an artist named Malcolm Bailey, who was based in New York. Um, it's an untitled work uh, from 1969 that's sort of a minimalist uh, 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 take on um, one of the 19th century engravings that were used by abolitionists who were at this time after the slave trade had been abolished, trying to publicize the cases of illegal slave trading and they used illustrations that were based on 19th century ships. It had different, different um, sort of uh, naval architectural lines, if you will. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is this painting by Bailey was purchased by the Whitney in 1969. Mm. It was on mm. view maybe in 1969, 1970 when it was purchased. And it hasn't seen the light of day since the Whitney right. reopened in New York in 2015. Right. And, and it's, it's, it's absolutely, it's scandalous. It is absolutely crazy. Yep. And so the yep. show that I'm working on, and Lee, I think we should collaborate, you know, and maybe we need to go mm-hmm. around institution to institution yeah. in the cities and towns in this country and abroad and to say, you need to, you know, we need to look at what you have and pull these works out. And let mm-hmm. many of the arguments are, oh, we don't have the space to exhibit things. And, oh, well, you know, the problem of, conservation. When I was in London, over just three days, I saw probably, I walked, I did my steps, I walked approximately 40 to 45 miles and wow. in, during this time period. And I saw maybe 15 different exhibitions. But one of the most amazing things was that there were, there were works by um, Howardina Pindell. This is not a museum show, mm-hmm. this is an exhibition at Victoria Miro. Um, in uh, in central London, these these paintings, beautiful paintings, that had not seen the light of day since the 1970s when she made them, you know, mm-hmm. and, and some. I mean, she's lucky to be able to see these being exhibited, you know, right. while she's here with us. But I think also one of the unfortunate things that that your work points to, Lee, is that many of these artists who are finally getting some, mm-hmm. you know, tiny bit of recognition. They're 70, 80, 90 years old, and people shouldn't yeah. have to wait that long. No. 
No, I mean, I, this is it, this is so key, and it, this is one of the things. I mean, a couple of the, the works in the show at the Berkeley Art Museum. Um, thinking of two abstract works in particular um, by um, a Haitian American artist, Hervé Telemach, um, and African American artist Peter Bradley. Um, mm-hmm. You know the the. Berkeley Art Museum, and it's also about these, these, these sort of moments when black artists and black art become hot, right? Yeah, um, right. And so, like you know, like now, right? And so in the late 60s, or, you know, in the 60s, um, black art, the Berkeley Art Museum started to collect um, some of these abstract works, Um you know, and, and indeed, there's a huge show on the main floor of the Berkeley Art Museum of the abstract expressionist Hans Hoffman. Um, and so in that same period when the Berkeley Art Museum was collecting these, these works and, and this huge Hoffman collection, they also started to collect works um, by, by, Af- by Black artists. Um, and yet there's, because... Um, this sort of divide or imagine that black art itself constitutes a separate category from, uh, from, you know, what we might call white art or just art, right. Um, that gets universalized. Um, these works have not been shown. Um, indeed it was, you know, my colleague, Lauren Croyd, who really insisted on, having the Peter Bradley in particular pulled out of, out of the storage facility. Um, there weren't even proper photographs made of it. Um, so it, it, we, you know, it hadn't been shown for some 40 years. Um, and I think this is, you know, this is, has long been the case with African-American with black history period. Um, but I feel like it's very much the case with, um, black art at this current moment that, um, you know, like Cheryl said, the work is there, you know, it's there, but it just hasn't been seen and it hasn't been given the context. And we have these moments of, um, you know, that they, be- they become moments rather than movements, right? They be, they're, they're these sort of, you know, particular, um, you know, heightened ideas. Oh, we have to have, you know, we have to collect this artist. But again, without um, a sustained mode of criticism, without ideas, without the larger historical um, or intellectual apparatus, without the will and desire um, or care even for audiences that might want to, you know, that would be interested in this kind of work, then a lot of it just gets lost. Yeah, And, and I would say, too, care is such an important part of mm-hmm. the the solution, I would say, mm-hmm. um, maybe even part of the problem. And one of the things that Dr. Morel, who did the exhibition that's in Paris, the Model Noir, anyone going to Paris, you must see it. I think it closes sometime in July. Um, but oh. is mm-hmm. she said she said that the information. I mean, this is the thing. You know, the information was there. It was all in the mm-hmm. record. This Everything, right. the names of people, the sitters, where they, all it was just there. But no one cared to look. Mm-hmm. No one took the time to look, to say, to identify. And one of the things that she did in this 
exhibition, which is a historical show primarily, is that when they came across works that just were identified either as untitled or um, with names that were, um, uh, you know, this innocuous black person, this and that, she said that they've taken the time to actually rename when they know who the people are and that the Mm -hmm. museum has, you know, in its effort to make the corrections has agreed to rename these works as they should be and acknowledge the you know who the sitters were so. and it's it's yeah it's, you know it just it reminds me of tony morris and talking about mm. you know the sort of the the african the buried africanisms in american literature and the kind of the act of, the, the willful acts of um you know erasure it takes to mm-hmm. sort of to not see blackness and and then you know just thinking about that the root of the word curate is, is care. Um, it's okay. about caretaking. Oh. Um, and I think that gets lost, um, mm-hmm. that often gets lost in the, in the sense of the kind of, you know, a little bit of the, the sort of cult of personality around a curator or the, the sort of curatorial vision. Um, but I think in many ways, and certainly for our class, we were really guided by um, in many ways, a black feminist practice of care. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 wow, that really. Can I? I want to interject something really quickly. Um, I just. Yeah, and and I wanted to mention that um, from the two students that they gave me um, the tour um, mm-hmm. last week. There, I, I definitely felt, and also you know um, yourself and and your colleague. Um, the care, you know, and, and admiration for the for the person, you know, who made the work, not just the work itself. Mm-hmm. And and I also wanted to mention to our audience who might be in Paris or maybe have money to just take a trip there to catch this exhibit, it closes on July 14th, Posing Modernity, the Black Model from mm-hmm. Monet to Matisse mm-hmm. to today. Um, and, um, yeah, it looks really, really great. I hope there's a catalog and um, and then I also wanted to ask. The, oh, there is. Oh, super, super. Yeah, it's not quite the same thing as going. Catalog and it's, and it's, it's been so popular. The English version, the French version, and the English version, and the French <laughs> version of the show that's in, at the Musée d'Orsay, which is different from the show that was in New York this past fall. Um, but the English mm-hmm. version has been uh, out of print. So um, hopefully, oh. there's print in more. Yeah. Mm. Oh wow. Yeah. And and then the whole question of if to curate means to care about and care means to have affection, you know, to um want the best for um the work as presentation and how can you present something and not name, you know, uh the person that's being depicted mm-hmm. or or the artist that created it. That means you don't care cuz if someone can find it this many years, centuries later, then that means that if you were right there when it happened, it would be really easy to name it. Um, And so the question that Fred uh, Moten poses um, in in your exhibit at uh, at MPFA is, can blackness be loved? Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is definitely part of... um, you know, thinking about 
how, um, you know, he asked that question in the context of this Arthur Jaffa film, um, Dreams Are Colder Than Death. And, um, and it's really for him as well, thinking about what is the work of black studies as a mm. critique of um, Western civilization. Um, and I think really thinking also about the work in the museum, um, thinking about, and the work in the classroom as, um, as a critique, thinking about a critique of Western civilization in the museum itself and the process. I think you asked a little bit about earlier about decolonization, but what does it mean to decolonize our thinking about the museum? Um, you know, sort of, you know, the museum has, uh, historically been a space of um, imperial or colonial collecting of accumulating of um, the, you know accumulating theft right of the culture of others um, and you know and hiding them away and the certain kind of the, the, the meta narratives that we tell the, the, the large histories that we tell through that and so what would it mean to um, to, to shift that, to undo those power relations um, and imagine mm -hmm. a different kind of space. And, you know, and, and you know, there's, um, you know, and obviously, you know, I come to this work because I love art and I love the museum. I love, you know, what can happen when, you know, we give ourselves over to art. Um, so it felt for all of us very important um, to take to take this work on with love and with care, as well as with um, a kind of radical critique. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So Cheryl, um, why don't you talk about you know sort of committed to memory because you know these conversations are, are certainly um, connected um, because you know if this is the first uh, iconic image image of this particular document and documented history that some say maybe never happened. And um, and then we think about presently the whole um, the bill around reparations um, and the discussion of the, um, the 400th uh, anniversary of the, um, uh, the docking of Africans in um, Fort Comfort, Virginia, mm. And, mm -hmm. and then, you know, we've got Juneteenth as well as the National Day of uh, Drumming and Healing coming up on the 19th next week. Um, this work and this conversation about belonging, about love, and not black people loving each other necessarily, but what about, you know, is the black person, you know, are black people love, you know, worth loving or lovable? And then we think about the commodification of the black body. So mm -hmm. do you love your mm -hmm. do you love things, right? Like you love people. Right. And people love their dogs, but do they love black people? <laughs> you know? That's that's a really good question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really that's a that's a perplex, perplexing question, I would I would say. Um yeah, um so I mean I, I would say one of the things that we've been talking about or we not well I mean I think we can still we can talk about this and um and I think Lee you probably feel it too cuz we were we were there you know in graduate school at the same time but but 
and I think even this moment of the type of work that we're doing in the Zans now today, the, the program that I'm going to be directing at Spelman come this fall, mm-hmm. um, that we're like in this moment where there's a, you know, it's like a generational shift. And um, where, you know, things that how, you know how it is in fashion. So I don't know if you all have a fanny pack. But, you know, mm-hmm. like back in the day, yeah. the 80s, fanny mm-hmm. packs were all in, right? <laughs> they called them, they, in, in London, they called them bum bags. The bum <laughs> is your fanny Anyway, so, so the whole time I'm here, I'm like looking around for a fanny pack for my daughter. But anyway, that's, a, that's, a, that's an aside. I found one <laughs> to bring back for her. But the point I'm trying to make is that we were having these conversations. We were meeting when we were um, abroad this, this past week um, with students from Spelman, myself and Andrea uh, um, uh, Barnwell Brownlee, the director of the, the Spelman College Museum of Art, and President Mary Schmidt Campbell, um, president of Spelman College. We were meeting with curators. We were meeting with um, people who work at art institutions. And when we met with um, particularly Mark Seeley, who has um, been um, in leading the charge at Autograph, which is an organization, an exhibition space and gallery located at Rivington Place in London in a building designed by David Aze, who was the um, architect mm-hmm. who designed the National African American uh, Museum in, in Washington. Um, one mm-hmm. of the things we were saying is that we feel like we're in this moment that we kind of lived before, you know, in the late 80s and early mm-hmm. 90s, right, where there was this huge attention. It was almost a black renaissance, if you will, in literature, in art, in film. If you think about when Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It came out, when um, Trey Ellis's Platitudes came out, um, when uh, Toni Morrison's mm-hmm. Beloved came out, right? And so we're now in this mm-hmm. moment, too, I think, where there is this really sh- big shift in attention to all things black cultural production. Um, mm-hmm. And I would say that, you know, in talking about Committed to Memory, it's a book that um, in, its, in its genesis began shortly after, sort of around this very same time in the, in the early to mid-1990s, um, sort of post-cultural uh, uh, studies, uh, um, you know, or, or sort of culture wars, if you will, um, and maybe as a product of the cultural studies movement, um, where... Um, in the work that I was doing as, as a graduate student, I came across this, um, this, this image, which I had seen in grade school um, when I was doing research in a class um, that was taught at the British Art Center at Yale, which is a center on campus and a museum that has the, the largest collection of British art outside of um, the UK and is now being head by Courtney Martin. Did you know this, Lee? Yes. Yeah, so Courtney I'm so Martin. Exciting. Is, yeah, it's super duper exciting. So she is she is an African American uh, um, art historian who also studied um, at Yale with uh, with Dr. Kelly Jones and Courtney Martin, um, who just left the Dia Art Foundation in New York, is now going to be heading the British Art Center at Yale. So I, I just think it's so exciting. But anyway. The point I'm trying to make is I was doing a presentation in a class where I was the only African-American student. It was a class on what was called the long 18th century. We were studying about um, this culture of consumption um, that was arising in the 18th century in Britain and France and other parts of Europe where 
um, uh, European artisans and collectors were beginning to acquire a taste for the finer things. So um, objects made out of silver or pewter or painted portraits of themselves because they acquired so much wealth. But I had a really difficult time bringing the, the elephant in the room uh, to the, the, the table for discussion among my, my fellow classmates, and that is the source of the wealth that enabled um, the artisans to acquire new skills, enable people to actually purchase these works. And that was, of course, the money that was brought in from the, the transatlantic slave trade. And so I did a, a presentation, um, and, and I, I came across this image again, and it became the subject of the paper for the class. The paper later was submitted for the Sylvia Arden Boone Prize, which was given um, in the name of Sylvia Arden Boone, who was the first black woman at Yale to um, earn uh, tenure um, in the history of art department. And um, after it won the prize, it became my dissertation. And, um, and it was also a time when, um, in terms of thinking about um, what people were doing in, in terms of lobbying Congress, this was a time when the reparations movement in, you know, in the, the early um, 1990s was, was taking off. Uh, Charles mm -hmm. Ogletree at, at, at Harvard was, um, was creating um, uh, legal documents um, in, in, in support of legislation to lobby Congress for a, a reparations bill. Um, Randall Robinson had written uh, the book The Debt, um, uh, Head of Trans-Africa, mm -hmm. and also thinking about how, you know, African-Americans can have a greater role um, in African development. And so I think that it was a product of this, this moment that, that, you know, that, that really um, pushed this book um, and the ideas for the book and the dissertation uh, out there. But it was also something that I can talk about the political sphere, um, but we have to talk about culture. We have to talk about art. You know, artists mm -hmm. knew this as well. Artists were at this time in the U.S., but especially in Black Britain, going back into the archives and trying to kind of understand, well, who am I and where do I come from? And in so doing, they came across images that spoke about who they, who they where from, from whence they came, I guess, is probably the best way to, to put it. Um, and so that's another thing that kind of, you know, contributed to the book coming into fruition. A lot of friends um, and colleagues also helped me to think about, well, you know, maybe you should consider something different. So um, one of the things that, that Lee and I bonded over, she took a year off. Was it a year or semester, Lee? I think it was a whole year, right? It was a semester. It was a semester <laughs> and a summer. <laughs> I was going to say, it's not like a year. But so Lee, Lee, Lee left for um, a semester and a summer to come study at Berkeley when we were in grad school. And she said, hey, you need to come back this fall because – there's going to be a conference at Berkeley on um, the prison industrial complex. And so I attended mm -hmm. the first conference with, with Lee that um, Dr. Angela Davis and others organized um, uh, of critical mm -hmm. res resistance, uh, the group that is still mm -hmm. working very hard at prison abolition. And it was there mm -hmm. that a whole chapter that looks at, you know, um, again, as you were saying, Wanda, this, you know, marketing of and commercialization of the black body. Um, through mm -hmm. uh, the lens of, of the prison industrial complex and, um, and work of contemporary artists like Hank Willis Thomas and others who have really thought about the commodification of, of the black body. Um, so there, there are many, I, I don't know if, how much time we have to, to really go into it, but I, I'll just say briefly that the book is divided into three different sections. Um, the first is sources roots from 1788 to 1900. 
um, where I talk about the idea, the form, and the circulation of this image I call the slaveship icon. And one of the other things that brought me to this image and, and to the topic is that while other scholars, I, I must say, have written about this image, um, from David Vineman to Marcus Wood, what I didn't find was their scrutiny um, of this image from um, a black Atlantic perspective, from the perspective right. of African-American studies. But also, they didn't really take the, not that they didn't take the time to, they, they, what needed to be done was to really look at the documentation. Many people have looked at the image, but you have to realize that it's a image that has a text that goes along with it. One of the titles mm -hmm. of this work is Description of the Slave Ship. You've got to look at that description to understand what it was being used for. This was a document that came out in 1788, in the, in the, in the, the winter of 1788, because abolitionists in Britain were up in arms about a bill that had passed in the summer of 1788 that was uh, designed to regulate the slave trade, not end it, but to regulate it, to say, okay, we'll mm -hmm. give you a slave ship doctor. We'll make sure the food is better. And we'll make sure that the ships are not crowded so that your, your, your cargo, your human cargo, will make it um, there uh, more or less uh, more alive, right? So they were up in arms. Mm -hmm. And they created this image to say that even with regulation, what you're doing is inhumane and it must be stopped. And that you can find mm -hmm. in the text that accompanies this image. So that was one of the reasons that brought me to the project. The, the next uh, section is called Meanings and Roots from 1900 to the Present. And I look at the period of the New Negro Arts Movement, also known as the Harlem Renaissance, um, the year 1969 in the U.S., which was a year of art, activism, and performance. Um, I look at art and activism in Britain um, in the 80s and 90s. And also I mentioned before um, you know, the commercialization, the commoditization of the body. Um, the last section called Rights and Reinventions from 1990s to the present, and I could, it could even be the present, you know, 2019, 2020, really. Um, I, look, I look at a number of different artists who have looked at um, this image from the point of view of its pattern and um, aesthetics. Um, I look at the way this image has really been worked through um, religion um, in the works of people like Maria Magdalena Campos Pons, um, who hails from mm -hmm. Cuba, and even in a church um, in, uh, in Chicago, the New Mount Pilgrim Missionary Baptist Church has a, a new a stained glass window uh, that was dedicated um, actually almost 20 years ago now, but um, in the year 2000, um, that's a remembrance window that has a, a really beautiful uh, image uh, from uh, Tom Feeling's uh, book, the, the Middle Passage. Um, and the book ends um, with a meditation on a poem by Elizabeth Alexander called Islands Number Four, um, and a mm. chapter called The Shape of Things Doesn't Always Appear As It Seems. So, um, yeah. yeah, I wish we had more time. But I hope that, that um, anyone who's listening out there will um, go to Princeton University Press website or um, your local bookstore. Actually, go to the Museum of the African Diaspora, please, yes. because I know mm -hmm. we still have copies there. And, um, and they have a really wonderful exhibition on view as well um, that, uh, that we were, I think, part of the program that we did was um, mm -hmm. in conversation with that exhibition. And uh, that show is titled Coffee, Coffee, Run, Run, Coffee Run, Sugar, Sugar, and, Sugar and, Gold. and Gold. Yeah, post-colonial um, post -colonial Caribbean, 
paradox. And just, I just yeah. also want to say about Cheryl's book that it is beautifully illustrated. Um, and so seeing, seeing just these beautiful reproductions of the work. Um, and, and again, we were talking about care. So the, the care in the way that the book is actually um, put together and visualized so that we really can spend time and see closely all of these images. Um, and, you know, and just the time that she takes to give us the histories of the artists, of the icon itself, um, you know, I mean, it's just, it is, it is a really magisterial work of scholarship. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Yeah. yeah and, so and I want to also mention, um, yeah, I also want to mention, um, uh, Cheryl, that I noticed that um, I'm still making my way through the book, and we'll have to have you on once I finish reading it. And hopefully, you know, you'll be in a space where you can you can uh, talk to me since you're traveling so much. I mean, that is so awesome. I don't know if your your work in South Africa has anything to do with this, but um, if so, I want you to please um, let us know um, before you know we we end the conversation. Um, but Betty Sar. Um, I'll bend, but I will not break. 1998 vintage ironing board mm, and iron mm-hmm. installation, and 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 so there's the ironing board, and there's this iconic uh, image of the slave ship on the ironing board, and then there's a sheet hanging like you know on a clothesline behind it, um, and and then there is the iron and um, or the place where the iron would go. And I was wondering because in this current exhibit at um, at BAM PFA um, mm-hmm. that we've been speaking about as well, about things love, blackness, and belonging. There's a, a Betty Sarr um, mm-hmm. um, installation, mixed media, um, like a portrait. As as we finish mm-hmm. the exhibition and walking out, uh, it's it's um, mm-hmm. it's it's uh, with some other artists whom you can um, you can mention by name, uh, Lee. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. and I was just wondering, are there any other artists in your book that also resonate in this current exhibit, which would be really cool. Yeah, I, I think um, the, the rum at the beacon, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there um, in the book. Um, I, I noticed that in the exhibition, I, I pulled up the website as um, when you, as you were, as we were talking about it, and I have to confess, I didn't get a chance to see while I was there, Lee. But I'm gonna try and get out there before it's down. Oh, no worries. Um, but yeah, there there are at least I think there are like there are three different Romare Beardens that are that are in um, mm-hmm. in in my book. He was um, mm-hmm. Romare Bearden was uh, an African American painter. He began as a figurative artist in the 1940s. Um, he later went through a period of abstraction, like most American artists did um, in the 50s and 60s, and after attending the March on Washington in 1963 with the abstract painter Norman Lewis and the printmaker and uh, painter um, Ernest Critchlow, the three of them formed a a collective called the Spiral Group. And one of the first Mm -hmm. charges that they had was to think about how to, well, first of all, to to think about this, you know, this conundrum um, of, uh, you know, black and white, uh, the conundrum of, you know, should we integrate or should we separate, right? But through the plastic arts and through um, an exhibition uh, where um, each of the participating artists would only work um, with things that were black and white, right? 
And he begins a new, uh, a new way of working as a result, and that is by um, working in collage. And so he used magazines and other types of things at the time. Um, you know, you'll know that uh, Jet Magazine, uh, Ebony Magazine, they were out. He was able to go into magazines like that and find images of black people um, to put into his collages. And so some of the examples that are in, um, in my book come from the collage work that he does, but especially by the late 1960s, he's also um, thinking about issues relating to um, the Middle Passage and, and does works um, that are relating to that history. He's asked to illustrate um, in the early 1970s the cover of TV Guide um, when uh, the very first uh, blockbuster miniseries came on television, and that was Roots in 1977. And so there are examples of works that kind of riff off of, um, or actually are that exact image from the cover of TV Guide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice, nice. Um, I also wondered. Um, I noticed that a lot of um, Hank Willis Thomas is in the uh, in your book, um, and uh, my daughter and he um, he was getting his master's in fine arts. My daughter was getting okay. her bachelor's in fine arts at California College oh. of Arts and Crafts. Uh, same time, and and my daughter uh, started the um, uh, Black Artists and Designers, um, uh, I guess. Um, club at at CCAC because mm-hmm. they had nothing for black students at that time, and Hank mm-hmm. he you know since he was a you know he was a graduate student he and Bayate um, were really good friends of Tassine but but Hank would actually host some of the the um, the club's meetings at his apartment, which is nice. really cool. Yeah, nice. and we were talking. Um, uh, you mentioned. Um, uh, Elizabeth Alexander sort of closing um, out the last section, and 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 you also mentioned because Hank and Elizabeth Alexander, some other folks, maybe um, in your book or the exhibit, I'm not certain, might actually be represented in the uh, the National Memorial for Peace, um, and and they are and the legacy. They are. Oh, okay. <laughs> in Montgomery, yeah. Alabama. Ah. Yeah. I took students from Spelman there um, in, I think oh, it must nice. have been in April, we went. And it's mm-hmm. such, a, such a moving, moving important place. Again, uh, I think what we're trying to do here on the show today, Wanda and Lee, is to curate an itinerary for our listeners mm-hmm. to go to these important places. So first stop is at the Berkeley Art Museum about things love, mm-hmm. blackness, and belonging. Next mm-hmm. stop we're going to stay here in the United States is to the Peace and Justice Memorial in Montgomery, Alabama mm-hmm. um, with, with the vision of Brian Stevenson. And don't forget to go to the Legacy Museum, which is nearby there. And yes, Slavery um, to Mass Incarceration. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is. So, so Elizabeth Alexander has a, a work there. Hank Willis Thomas does. And then um, it's really important to, um, to mention the installation at the museum itself um, that uh, was designed by, I'm going to forget the name right now, but I'll try to find it before we close, but a design group, Mass Art, um, that's, based in, um, that's based in Boston. And, and Hank Willis Thomas uh, also recently, it should be mentioned, um, in early May he was selected to design a memorial to Dr. Coretta Scott. King and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
going to be mm-hmm. on the Boston Common. Um, they met um, when they were in school in Boston, and it's, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful, beautiful design that he has come up with. So that's something to look forward to in the next couple of years. Um, okay. And it's called the Embrace, and it is just it's it's amazing, amazing, amazing. Um, and then if we want to talk about European um, uh, exhibitions, I was just about to mm-hmm. send the email, Wanda. Um, mm-hmm. But exhibitions, if we're going to add the itinerary in London, opening tonight mm-hmm. is an exhibition um, called Get Up, Stand Up Now. And it's at Somerset. Oh, yes. And it's curated by Zach Ove. And um, Frank Bowling has a, um, a painting exhibition at the Tate Britain, a retrospective um, exhibition. He's an important um, Guyanese painter who has lived in New York and um, in London over the years. He's 85 years old, and it's a really important oh. show. It, his matte paintings are um, influential abstract paintings. There's also an exhibition opening at the Hayward Gallery also tonight in London, called Kiss My Genders, mm-hmm. and that's about gender and sexuality, and it's a lot of fun. It has a lot of music in it, as does um, the Get Up, Stand Up Now um, at Somerset House, mm-hmm. and then there are tons of gallery gallery shows. Isaac Julian is showing at Victoria, Victoria Miro. Howard Dina Tindell is also at Victoria Miro, um, and there are many other shows um, that... Um, uh, Oscar Murillo is also on view, um, and when we were there, we happened to catch his um, interview and private view, so that was a lot of fun. There's also a Singa and Ludi show in London. I'm, I'm telling you, like, mm-hmm. all these people are in London right now, which yeah. is wow. it's a crazy That's story. amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, and I, I, I think, think, you know, just back to one of the places we were starting or uh, talking about is that, you know, there, there is actually – so much available and happening, um, you know, that we have access to and there's good, really great work being done, um, you know, whether it's in London or Paris or New York or here in the Bay. I, I mean, I also just want to mention our own um, Museum of the African Diaspora, MOAD, um, which yep. continues mm-hmm. to just be, continues to do excellent programming and really exciting exhibits, um, you know, and then, you know, LA, there's so much going on in LA um, as well. I should also, I just, I, I guess I would be remiss if I didn't um, I have another show up at the California African American yep. Museum in LA that's related to the Charles oh, okay. White retrospective. Um, oh, so nice. I think, you know, are there so much, you know, the, you Lee, know, would you Black tell us is, the title of your show? Sure. The show um, in L.A. at CAM is called Plumb Line, Charles White and the Contemporary. Um, and it's a, a group show of more than 20 contemporary artists working um, in the vein of Charles White, um, the, the great um, draftsman and photographer and, uh, and, and painter um, who is, recently has had his, the traveling exhibition um, of his uh, retrospective uh, of his career um, that's currently up at LACMA and actually will be coming to, um, or well, no, Soul of the Nation is coming to the De Young very soon. But there's so, and he's also oh, in that it? show as well. It is. It'll be coming oh. in, I believe, in 2020. Um, 
so yeah, there there is um, so much, so many opportunities for us mm. um, to continue to explore this history, and you know, we're just um, and you know to have and again have works like Cheryl's to really you know, just expand the ways that we tell these stories. I think is just is so vital for us in this moment. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's, it's really so exciting. Is Cheryl, um, excuse me, um, Lee. Is is your is your um, the show that's at um, the African American Museum in Los Angeles? Is is that is your show going to be a part of the De Young exhibit as well? No, no. So this is a this is a separate uh, satellite show. Um, there are three mm-hmm. shows up in LA. There's the Charles White mm-hmm. retrospective. Um, there's an, mm-hmm. a second show called Life Model that's curated by Charles White's son, Ian White, um, and it's mm-hmm. a group show of um, Charles White students, so, so um, folks including Carrie James Marshall and David Hammond um, and John mm-hmm. Biggers, and then, um, and then the show at um, the California African American Museum, which are to, to all much um, emerging artists. Also, Lee, there's a, a, a David Hammond gallery show in L.A. too yes. that just opened. Um, I don't know. I, I yes, hope it's still it is up. at House and Worth. It's still up. It has, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, there's so, there's uh, so much. So I'm, I'm, I know, I'm coming. To Wanda, we should just make a list. We should just make a list for your yeah for your, yeah for your audience. Yeah. That would be I, super. I yeah. I started the ones in in the in the UK and Paris, so I'll, we could mm-hmm. add to those. But I I think I'm okay. going to come to I'm to the West Coast. I'll see you all in a couple of weeks. Absolutely, <laughs> cool. Well, I just want to mention that the one um, uh, uh, Plum Line, Charles White, and the Contemporary that's uh, up through August 25th. So that's going to be up for mm-hmm. a minute, which is awesome. And and yeah. then I noticed also that uh, there's Ernie Barnes, a retrospective, yes. um, that yep. just started last oh, month, and he's awesome. He came Dr. here before Bridget he passed. Trump. Yeah, that's through September 8th. Um, people probably know his work from um, JJ um, Good Times. Is, yeah. is that in LA? That's at um, you know the show? Yeah, that's in Los Angeles as well. That's at the California African American Museum. Mm-hmm. And that was curated yeah. by I, um, Dr. Bridget Cook, who is um, really just an amazing art historian, professor of Black Studies, um, who wrote one of the first, I think, one of the first and really important books on the history of exhibiting Black art in museums. Um, and really, mm-hmm. was that book was really important for my class as well. Yeah, so important. Yeah. And, and then did, something coming did, up. Yeah. I was mentioning. I was thinking. I was looking at what's coming up. Gary Simmons, Fade to Black, uh, that opens July 12th and goes through December, and is curated by Naima uh, J. Keith and Tisa Cam, directory de- deputy director and chief curator. But this particular so that, that really piece is actually up. to what we're talking about as well. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's a, a per, almost a, a semi-permanent piece that's already that's been up in the museum for the last oh, few years. Okay. The Gary Simmons mm-hmm. piece. Um, but the great thing about Cam is that it is the first and um, only um, uh, dedicated museum dedicated to African American 
um, history and culture that's funded by the state of California. Um, it was founded in 1978. Charles White was actually on the founding, uh, one of the founding board members. Um, and mm-hmm. what's also great about CAM is that it's always free. Mm-hmm. Nice. So, yeah. Okay. Nice. Well, what, what so was Dr. Was, was Dr. Ruth Wadi one of the founders? Um, I believe she was. You know, she mm-hmm. lived. She lived here, and her 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 daughter is still here. Um, Miriam Anna Awadi is still um, here in San Francisco. Oh, great. Yeah. And well, I want to add one more to the list. And sorry, uh-huh. Cheryl, I keep on interrupting you. I want to add one more to the list. It's at Joyce Gordon Gallery presently through the end of June, and then another exhibit starts. Um, but it's called um, Through um, Abahi's Eyes, and it's the work of uh, Ebony Iman Dallas, and and she has a memoir that she uh, that she's written that um, actually right now is being published. And so for each one of these pieces. Um, there's an excerpt from the memoir, and the story is of her father, who's from Somaliland. Um, he is killed by a police officer before she meets him, so she's like um, four months. Her mother's carrying her, and and so she has. Um, she's raised by a stepfather and her mother, really loving father, stepfather, and um, in in um, um, in Oklahoma, uh, she's. She was raised in Oklahoma City, and and then when she comes to California, um, someone meets her, and she's she's a visual artist, a painter, and and also an organizer. Someone meets her, and he recognizes her and says, "Your family's been looking for you." And so hmm. she reunites with her uh, East African family and goes visits and travels around the world, meeting family. And so this is that story. It's really, really beautiful, and it's up, like I said, through the yeah. end of the month. And and um, and there will be an artist talk next Friday, the 21st, I think 6 to 8 or something like that. And so the George Gordon Gallery, 16th uh, anniversary this year, is located at 406 14th Street. Wonderful. That sounds great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for this conversation, Wanda. Oh, you're quite welcome. Great. It's been really lovely. It's been Hopefully, really we can have wonderful. Yeah. Because yes. I know, Cheryl, you have something, I think, at 11 o'clock, right? Or 11.30 or oh, something. Oh, well, you know, it was 11 o'clock East Coast time. So I'm good. Oh. That's that. Oh, you're good. I'm okay. In, I'm in okay. New York. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I okay. actually wow. do have to go, though. Oh, okay. Do you wanna um do you wanna like do a shout out to your students, like name them? Um, do you wanna do a shout out to some of the artists that we haven't mentioned? Um, do you wanna talk about your mission statement? How do you wanna conclude your, your part of the oh, Well I just you know, um I guess I was well, yes. Uh well there are fifteen students so I know if I try to name them all I would inevitably forget somebody and I would feel even worse. Um, but um, the students have done really remarkable work. Um, and I just really just want to encourage um, folks to come see the show if you're in the Bay Area. Um, you know, the museum's open Wednesday through Sunday. Um, there are some free days. I don't know exactly when they are, but I think they're usually like Thursdays. Um, after uh, after a certain hour, um, but there are tours um, on Wednesdays and Saturdays. Um, 
that you know we would and the students are really excited students give the tours um, and they are really excited to share the work um, also what's important the last thing I will say about that show as well is that it was really important for for the students and for all of us to feel like there was a way to engage visitors so the students designed um, comment cards and a comment box which is not something that Berkeley Art Museum typically does, um, but really wanting um, audience feedback and interaction. Um, and there are um, the comment cards are then being put in a binder in the study um, uh, in the resource center in Berkeley Art Museum, um, and we're reading them and responding to them as best we can, um, pretty much on a you know a few times a week. Um, so we really want to hear people's thoughts um, in, in large part so that we can let BAM and other museums know that um, this work that we've put together um, is of interest um, and desired by, by audiences. Um, so please do come and, you know, just let us know um, and come join a tour. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, Lee. Thank and, you and so much, um, Wanda. Yeah, I look forward to talking to you again, yeah. and maybe we could talk yeah. about your your exhibit in Los Angeles and you know other scholarship you know that you're working on presently. I would love that. Um, I would absolutely love that. Um, and um, so, talk to you soon, Wanda and and Cheryl. I will see you very soon. Cannot <laughs> 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 wait. Okay. <laughs> All right, thank All right. you. Peace and blessings. All right, thanks a lot. Peace and blessings. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> so, Cheryl, um, wondering, um, we we have a few more minutes. I was wondering, um, did was there something um, like, did you want to share something that you you've written in the book um, to for our audience so they can get a a feel for the writing? Um, uh, or would you want to talk more about um, just sort of how you come to, you know, wanting to be a scholar? Like, did you always want to, you know, be a researcher when when you were a little girl? And um, oh, or no. would you know, like, how were you inspired to even take this particular journey? You know, as you know, as your career. That's actually a really good question. So, so I mentioned as we've been talking for the last. Um, Several days I've been traveling with uh, uh, three students from Spelman College and the, the director of the college on a what she calls an art intensive in, in Europe. And one of the students asked me that question, and I don't think she was really prepared for such a long-winded answer. Um, so I'll try to keep it short here, given our time. But you know, when I when I was younger, I, I wanted to be I wanted to be an actor on on the stage, and and I danced. I took mm -hmm. acting and dance, and dance and acting all throughout um, you know my grade school years. And then I, I I went to college, and for my work study position, I was um, placed in the art department. I was at Wellesley College in right outside of Boston, an all women's college, and um, mm -hmm. And while I was there, I was interested in uh, or became more interested in, in art uh, because for that position, I had to, um, and this was back in the day when there was nothing digital, everything was analog. So we had actual 35 millimeter slides. We had what are called lantern slides from the 
uh, late 19th century and early 20th century made out of glass that were used to project onto the screen in darkened room where darkened rooms where when you are in an art history class usually you're comparing and contrasting images made by visual artists on on the screen and so I had to not only show slides to art history classes but I also had to um, prepare the slides for the teachers and and this work really enabled me the ability to see in ways that I just had not been trained to before I trained myself uh, doing this mm -hmm. also at the same time I was very interested in photography so I had been interested in photography since I was in junior high school. My father gave me a camera. I took photography classes, and I even took photography at Wellesley. But I ended up being a Spanish major, and um, and I don't. I kind of really don't know how that came about. But languages come pretty easily to me, and um, I studied in Spain, and I had a great time doing that. When I finished college, I I got a job working for a man who was an MIT grad who had a company that made. Um, they made parts for the defense and medical technologies industry out of tungsten metal, and they also made playing darts. But he was a very wealthy man. His business was very successful, and he was also an art collector, and he specialized in his collection in photography. And in 1985, hmm. he had the opportunity to acquire the collection of an American photographer named Berenice Abbott, and I, I, I came to work for him as the curator for this collection or this archive. And I worked in that position for three years, but during the time that I was there, I came to understand the nature of my job to be not only as a curator, a caretaker of the collection, someone who organized exhibitions for the collection, but also because there was a commercial interest. He sold examples from the collection um, to the public. It was a, a commercial archive, if you will, but he also acquired this collection as, as, a, as a way to be able to offset his earnings. And so every year, we made donations from the collection to universities around the country. And for me, this was fun because it's kind of, in a way, being able to gift, you know, put together, curate sort of small collections um, based on the different kinds of things that the artist did but to also give those away to other universities and colleges so that other students like myself would be able to, to learn from them and to study, um, to study them. So I did this for a, a number of years, as I said, but at the end of every year, an appraiser would come in, and um, her name was Penelope Dixon, and she would ask me for things like, okay, I'd like to have the list of works that were sold um, the list of critical articles that have been written about the artist. Um, can you tell me where the works have been exhibited and give me a list of what you put in this donation? So I put all that together, and about a month later, we would get an appraisal back, which was like a term paper, essentially. That's what it reminded me of because I was just out of college writing a, a, maybe a 20-page paper. And then we got the bill, and when I saw what she was making and I knew what I was making, I said to myself, well, this might be something that I could do because I like to write and, you know, I, I can do this. I, I, know, I know a little bit about economics. I was an econ minor. And so when it was time for her to look for an apprentice, I began to work with her. And I did that for a number of years running the office in New York. And, um, but I was at an auction, and I'm going to try to describe this for you. Um, I was at an auction in the early 1990s. 
And it was an auction that took place at Christie's on Park Avenue. That was part of the regular job. You go to auctions, you sit there, you write down who bought what, and I got to know who the people who were in the room. I was acutely aware that I was the only black person in the room most of the time. Um, maybe once in a while there might be another African-American collector. Um, there were never black people in charge of any of the major departments at any of the major auction houses, but there were black people who worked as art handlers. And because there was nothing digital at the time, all the art that was offered for sale, if it was a size that was hand, hand, uh, manageable by hand, the art handlers would put it up on the auction block. And at this one sale that took place in about 1992-1993, the sale of uh, several works from the collection, the estate of Robert Maplethorpe, uh, who was a controversial American photographer um, known especially for um, his nudes and in particular nudes of black men that he had taken in a number of different portfolios that he made over the years. And there was one of those works that came up for sale that was also handled by one of the art handlers. And um, if, tell me if I, if I should cut this short. I hope I'm not taking too much time to get to the punchline or to the point. No, Am I okay? no, no, go ahead. Take, okay. take your time, yeah. <laughs> this work that came up for sale, um, and, and to just try to describe the room, um, just imagine you're in this very luxurious Park Avenue auction room. Um, there, there's, there's velvet on the walls where they hang the works of art, and the vast majority of the works that are for sale are by um, the, the gay uh, uh, photographer, artist, Robert Maplethorpe, who... Um, was involved in uh, a lot of controversy probably the year, I think it was the year before one of his exhibitions was pulled um, from Cincinnati, Ohio, an art museum there because of the explicit content of the work. Um, and the work that came up for sale was called Man in a Polyester Suit. And um, this is a work um, that Maplethorpe made of an African-American uh, model that uh, he frequently photographed, uh, usually all the way nude. And in this work, the man is photographed from the neck down um, wearing a polyester suit. It's a black and white photograph. And uh, he has on a shirt. It's almost from sort of the waist up. It looks like he might be going to work. Um, but below the waist, um, his pants are open, the fly is open, exposing his penis. And when this work came up for sale, and it's not that the work itself is, for many of us who study Maplethorpe or study photography or the history of art, that it's terribly controversial. But when it came up on the auction block, the art handler, who was a middle-aged black man, displayed it where um, it was not positioned correctly. It's a vertical image, and instead it was shown horizontally. And everyone in the room, with the exception of me and him, erupted in laughter. And it was a moment that was really heartbreaking, where I was cringing almost at the point of tears, looking at how, in a sense, you know, it almost was as if the man who was holding the work was the man pictured in the image that he was holding. Um, the auctioneer instructed him to continue to turn the image around until he got it right, which he did. Um, and people continued to laugh until finally the work was sold. But at that moment, I decided that I could not be in that room anymore. I didn't want to be in that room anymore until it started to look a little bit more like me. 
and until there were people who looked like me who were not the art handlers, but instead who were the auctioneers, who were the specialists in the department, who were the buyers in the room, who were the artists whose works that were being sold. And at the very same time that this happened, you know, I was at a point where I was, I was considering a job at another of the auction houses where I could have been one of the specialists. But I decided at that point that I needed to do something about it, and doing something would mean for me going back to school to be able to be in a position to educate people, to educate young minds who might want to go into the arts professions. But also, even if they didn't, let's say they want to become a doctor or a lawyer or a person who works in business, to educate them about art so when they get through that training and they have the resources to begin to collect, that they can begin to build collections and they themselves might be able to be in positions to support the arts, to fund museums and to go into other ventures related to the exhibition and display archiving and documentation of black art. And, um, and that's, that's kind of how I got into what I'm doing. The last thing I will say is that, you know, when I graduated from college, my mother kept saying to me, you know, when are you going to go to graduate school? You should go get your master's. You need to do this. You need to do some more, you know, go on and do some more training. And I, I just wasn't ready. You know, I didn't know what I wanted to do at that time. And I didn't want to go and take out, you know, loan upon loan to go into a graduate program if I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And one of the things I found out over the period of time between undergrad and grad school, which was about nine years, is that, and I didn't know this when I was an undergrad, and, and just, you know, a note to anyone who's out there listening, that, um, that, you know, to go to graduate school at an R1, a Research One institution in, in the U.S., um, most people who enroll uh, have uh, no responsibility for the tuition, um, that it would normally be charged. So there's tuition, uh, what they call tuition reimbursement. You're not, you're not responsible for tuition. And most people also receive um, a stipend, a stipend um, that is not necessarily enough to really live on, um, but that doesn't make you end up leaving graduate school with huge amounts of debt. And that stipend, um, you know, depending on where you are today, it might range somewhere between about twenty and thirty thousand dollars a year. You teach or you do research for uh, professors in your department, but usually most people teach in exchange for that um, that stipend um, in order to, you know, get yourself through graduate school. And I would just encourage anyone who is interested in pursuing a PhD or an advanced degree to really look into it because there are ways to do it where you're not necessarily going to end up having to owe thousands and thousands of dollars once you finish. Um, so that was my route. And, um, and I, I'll, I'll say in closing that in terms of the work that I'm doing, I mentioned um, an exhibition that I'm working on uh, called The Light of Day about those works by black artists that have been tucked away uh, for so many years and not, not been shown. Um, but the other uh, book that I'm working on is called Black Market, inside the art world, and it's about the, um, the, the art market uh, related to um, African and African-American art. And it begins with this narrative that I, I just shared with you about the, the auction room experience and how I ended up uh, going to graduate school. Mm -hmm. ah, thank you. So the, um, back to the uh, Maplethorpe image, uh, Man in a Polyester Suit, 
So was he decapitated? Like there was no head, just the neck down? Oh, no, 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 no. He's not decapitated. It's just a no. Oh. Um, it's just that the photographer, um, uh, the, and, and I can maybe send you a link to where you could um, share it with your your uh, listeners. Um, the the way the photograph was uh, framed, if you will. It's framed from the the neck, about the chin uh, to the neck down. I'm not looking at it right now to talk to you, um, to mm-hmm. his mid-thigh. So that's how it's framed. He is not decapitated. And it was a, a very sort of, uh, I want to call it a 1980s postmodernist uh, way of framing and photographing. Um, often, um, if you look at the work of someone like Lorna Simpson, for example, Mm-hmm. Uh, she, when working during this period, she often would uh, do the same thing. Sometimes you don't include the the head of the person um, that you're photographing. Sometimes the person that you're photographing, their back is turned, and that's that's one of her her devices is the, is the turned back, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking at it, and um, yeah, it's just from his um, like his torso down, because I, I don't from- see a head. No, you it's from his neck down, from his neck down to oh, his really? thigh. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. All right. So I don't, yeah. I don't have a good well, image yet, though, because in this particular one, um, it's not, they don't have his neck. They have his torso. Um, Hold on. Okay. Okay. Wait, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can find it for you and send it to you really quickly. Okay. Okay. Yeah, same same image. Okay. <clears throat> oh, it's not coming up. Yeah, because I've got Man in Polyester Suit, 1980. Um, yeah. I've tried it in two different places, and I got the same image. Oh, yeah, it's from, sorry, I got it wrong. So it's from his, yeah, his mm-hmm. chest mm-hmm. Right. to his mid-thigh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, so the top of his vest because he's got on the suit. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so you said that the art handler, how did he have the uh, the the the, um, the photo uh, set on the easel? It was horizontal. It might have okay. been upside down, but the the point that I'm trying oh. to make is twofold. Yeah, the, the One, laughter. Yeah. Was, was laughed at, and I mean, I literally, I was at, at the point of, mm-hmm. of of tears, and also mm-hmm. that he um, that he uh, um, you know was made to write it to turn it around mm-hmm. until he got it right, but but in, yeah. in addition, once he did that, once he did that, he turned into the man in the polyester suit, so it was as if mm-hmm. the right. you know the the green uniform from Christie's disappeared. And his head was there. So if you can imagine that mm-hmm. image, that's that's the image. It's, yeah. it's hard because we're not, you know, we're not we're in radio or where whatever land we're in, we're not we're not talking. <laughs> we don't have this in front of us, right? But that if mm-hmm. you can imagine right. that, and he almost you know stood mm-hmm. in for that person, and it was just like, oh no, I I just can't go on, not not in this context right. anymore. So mm-hmm. yeah, 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 and. Um... Yeah, and, and you know, sort of like you know, that's a male figure, and him being a male figure, and just sort of just that the discourse between the image and the person, and just thinking about auctions, right? As 
you know, sort of that psychosocial idea. Mm-hmm. Right, and so it was as if he were for sale on the auction block, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, the, and what are they looking for? They want to know, you know, penis. They they measure those things, you know, like how useful will you be? Look at your hands, look at, you know, look in your mouth, at your teeth, you know, mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah, sort of objectifying him. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh, wow, exactly. yeah. Well, this is really interesting, you know, just how you – you know, came to do what you do. And and then I wish I had talked to you before I became, I got in so much debt around the uh, tuition reimbursement and the stipend because I'm one of those people that's like, I keep on deferring because I just can't face it. And so, you know, it just compounds and compounds the interest mm-hmm. from two masters. It's like crazy. Mm-hmm. I, could buy, I could buy a little house. Hmm. Right, yeah. right, right. Wow. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, but that's wow. I mean, that was so, the reason that I delayed for so long because I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't figure out how I was gonna, I couldn't figure out how I was gonna pay for it. But I also didn't know what I wanted to do, so I didn't want to. I, I didn't. I didn't have the time, or the patience mm-hmm. to want to figure out what I wanted to do, um, you know, as as a bill accrued. And once I knew exactly what I wanted to do, I applied to exactly where I wanted to go and got in. You know, I didn't, I wasn't okay. one of those people who went and did 50 million different applications. I did one application mm-hmm. to Yale. I did one application to the University of uh, New Mexico, which has an excellent program in photography, the history of photography, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, to make photographs. And the person that I wanted mm-hmm. to work with was leaving, um, retiring, and so I, I, I didn't get in at the University of New Mexico and I didn't I didn't go there but I got into Yale and that's really where I I needed to be so it was good. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like being focused and doing doing research and making sure that it'll be a good fit um will definitely cut away both time and money you know mm-hmm. in, in your higher education pursuits. Yeah, good information. Wow, wow. So did you want to close with any anything you've written um from the book um Oh, uh, so right. people can get a flavor, or um, let me see. Let them me see. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, and oh, and also, um, I forgot um to mention that when Lee was on, I had it written down <laughs> when you all were talking. But just the whole, you know, sort of libation to the ancestors that this whole book is, um, you know, is so beautiful. And and also, I I think. Um, in in the uh, the work at BAM PFA, um, you know um, um, about things love, blackness, and belonging. Um, uh, I think that's also certainly a libation, you know, to African ancestors, particularly of the Middle Passage, but also those that survived, um, so that we could be here presently. Um, I think you know both of your works certainly um, are, are 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 those kind of gifts. I agree, and thank you. This this is a gift. It's a gift from the ancestors, really. So I'm, I'm gonna, if, mm-hmm. if it's okay, I'll read. Um, I hope it won't be too long, but it's about two pages. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Is that too long? Well, we have 13 minutes. I think we can do two pages in 13 minutes. <laughs> okay, cool. I'll try. All right. So this is okay. from page uh, five. Um, mm-hmm. 
And, and what I had been talking about, so I'll, I'll kind of set it up. So I begin uh, in the book with an image by a, a, an artist from Benin named Ramald Hazume. Um, and, uh, and I begin with an image that he made in uh, 1997 to 2005 called La Bouche de Roi, which in French means the, the mouth of the king. And he's talking about the complicity uh, between um, Beninese um, uh, kings and royalty and, uh, and uh, European slave traders in fomenting the slave trade um, in uh, the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. And um, it was an installation that was featured prominently in 2007, which marked the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade in the UK. And, um, and during that year, there were several exhibitions and events held around the UK and its former colonies to mark this anniversary. And um, this work traveled around um, uh, different cities in, um, in England from uh, London, I think it was also um, in Bristol and in Liverpool in different exhibitions. So it's an installation that includes um, uh, uh, a, a sculptural element made from uh, plastic uh, jerry cans, is what they're called. These are basically gasoline cans that are used to illegally transport gasoline from uh, uh, Nigeria to Benin. Uh, many people do this um, because of the lack of fuel and resources. And when they do this, they often carry these jerry cans on their backs um, on scooters and, and other forms of transportation, sometimes ending in the loss of life. So it's a very perilous um, illegal transport. And there is uh, uh, a, a film and a, a video installation of, of these um, illegal uh, uh, gasoline smugglers, in addition to photographs of the shores from which enslaved people were taken away um, a particular site of memory in, in Benin. And then the installation on the floor with these plastic cans in the shape um, that is made by the schematic description of a slave ship. Um, we see this as well um, in the installation. And so I begin with a discussion about that moment in the installation um, at the British Museum in London. So I'm gonna start reading mm -hmm. from here. And this was a really, just to set this up, it was a controversial moment in that, you know, this 200th anniversary year, just as we approach, I want to say, the 400th anniversary of the, the landing of enslaved people um, in Virginia, you know, we really have to take a moment and step back and think about what is being marked, what moment is being marked or commemorated and why. And I think that many people in England in 2007 who are of African de descent um, from the Caribbean, from Britain's former colonies, um, from Africa, from Southeast Asia. Um, many people felt that structural racism was still so prevalent that to take a moment in 2007 to mark and commemorate Britain ending the slave trade, um, which is in a way, you know, the, the kingdom uh, patting itself on the back was not necessarily something that was inclusive of their, their current um, situation and the, 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 the ways in which they were living and still trying so hard to find work, to find good places to live and so on. So there was a lot of backlash against this. Um, so I'm going to begin reading here. 
I begin with a selection of works from the 2007 bicentenary that use description of the slave ship to start a conversation about the practice of memory, the practice of mnemonic aesthetics, and its crucial relationship to what I call the slave ship icon, the most enduring image from the history of transatlantic slavery. In this book, I trace a visual genealogy of the slave ship icon in the minds, memories, and creative work of black artists and their allies in the 20th century and today. Throughout history, poets, painters, orators, and later photographers, installation artists, performance artists, and sound artists have employed mnemonic strategies that contribute to a sustained and recognizable practice of remembrance in African diaspora visual culture. Without a doubt, the slave ship stands as the most prominent visual metaphor for the historical memory of the Middle Passage. As Paul Gilroy writes, and I quote, the image of the ship, a living, microcultural, micropolitical system in motion, is especially important for historical and theoretical reasons. Serving as a lens through which we can focus attention on the Middle Passage, on the various projects for redemptive return to an African homeland, on the circulation of ideas and activists, as well as the movement of key cultural and political artifacts, end quote. The image I call the slave ship icon began as the official British abolitionist plan of the slave ship Brooks, a schematic representation of the crowded lower deck of the slave ship's human cargo hold. When it was first created in England in 1788, the striking schematic engraving description of a slave ship exposed the underbelly of a commercial vessel bearing human cargo, depicting the means of transporting enslaved Africans to the Americas via the Middle Passage. In studying this image, we find that it has had at least two lives. The British abolitionists who created it used it as a political print, a visual weapon in their fight to end the transatlantic slave trade. The artists, engravers, and printers who modified and distributed it were white men working primarily in Europe and North America. The political and propagandistic activity surrounding the slave ship icon was particularly dynamic in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, up until the abolition of both the slave trade and slavery itself. What followed was a period of dormancy, perhaps of apparent death. Then, beginning with the New Negro Arts Movement, also known as the Harlem Renaissance, the slave ship icon underwent a process of rebirth. In the second life, the slave ship icon was, and continues to be, reappropriated, symbolically repossessed by the descendants of those who were the subject of the image, by diasporic Africans, that is, by Black Atlantic artists and their allies. It has since come to have a special place in the souls of those Black folk who descend from that forced migration, and it has proven to be one of the most powerful images of the last 230 years. In looking for comparable images in Western culture, one must turn to such iconic subjects as the crucifixion. Undoubtedly, the crucifixion offers a compelling parallel for both images have been repeatedly rendered and reworked over the centuries, but they simultaneously embody death and rebirth. The slave ship icon frequently has been likened to a coffin and to a womb. It is a site of death, 
of dying Africans, and of new life, of a people who would persevere in the face of slavery and unspeakable cruelty to become a free people who helped to define the modern era. Should I go on? How are we doing, time-wise? We have five minutes. Okay. I'll try to speed up. Since the beginning of... And then we we go into the archives, so you go ahead and finish it. Okay, I'll, I'll try to be quick. I just realized I've got to run too. Um, since the beginning of the Negro arts movement, visual artists working in cosmopolitan metropoles around the Black Atlantic Rim, the coast that circumscribed the passage from Africa to the Americas to the West, to Western Europe, have reimagined the slave ship icon in their works. Um, artists such as Miguel Covarrubias, who hails from Mexico, Amiri Baraka, also known as Leroy Jones, the great playwright and poet, uh, the, the, the artist Betty Saar, who hails from, uh, from Los Angeles, Romare Bearden, uh, that we spoke about earlier, Keith Piper um, from Britain, Maria Magdalena Campos Pons, um, and Godfrey Duncor, Hank Willis Thomas, there's so many more. They've all taken hold of the slave ship icon in their works of book illustration, painting, theater, performance, installation, printmaking, photography, and film. And I would add, I'm kind of going off script here, Wanda, but this image, as you know, we talked about it in the work of Andrew Wilson, um, who's a, yeah. an artist who works with uh, textile and design and, and also um, in jewelry and metals. Um, but we can also even talk about this image being in the built environment. Here at Cornell, where I've taught for the past 15 years, in our Africana Center, which was the very first Africana Center um, in uh, a predominantly white uh, uh, institution um, uh, that was founded um, uh, 50 years ago in 1969. Um, In that new building uh, that was opened a decade ago in the library, um, the the designers and architects of that library actually looked at the schematic and tried to, in some way, incorporate some of its architectural uh, design into um, the ceiling and some of the use of woods like mahogany uh, to mark the beams in certain places in the building. So there are ways in which architects are even thinking about how they might incorporate this image um, into some of the buildings that they make. So I say here that these artists have deployed the slave ship icon as a symbolic marker, making it central to their works as they relate the middle passage to their historical origin as well as to the present moment. Public historians and exhibition designers at museums and memorials alike also have called upon its architectural schematic as a kind of blueprint for designs of installations that seek to tell the story of transatlantic slavery, colonialism, and empire. The slave ship icon has remained a persistent phenomenon in contemporary culture in the United States and throughout the Black Atlantic. It appears with remarkable frequency in fashion, film, and digital media as well as in works of fine art. It has been a favorite t-shirt design for designers that talk and recast the history of slavery in cataclysmic, unforgiving terms with slogans such as African Holocaust or Never Forgive, Never Forget. Posters protesting the prison industrial complex and the rise of global capitalism have featured the plan of the slave ship icon as a visual reminder, not only of the way things used to be, but also as a portent of the future. The plan of the slave ship seems to have inexhaustible uses in digital space as well. And we see this in blogs, 
um, and, and other other formats um, relating to and speaking of African American um, and African diaspora history and culture. And even as the disaster of Hurricane Katrina unfolded in late summer of 2005, some political and cultural commentators noted how residents of New Orleans stranded on the Interstate 10 brought to mind images of the slave ship icon. In a live interview with reporter Anderson Cooper of CNN, the Reverend, Je Reverend Jesse Jackson remarked, quote, today I saw 5,000 African Americans on the I-10 causeway, desperate, perishing, dehydrated, babies crying. It looked like Africans in the hull of a slave ship, end quote. In a more recent and reoccurring tragedy at sea, where thousands of African migrant refugees attempt to reach the shores of Europe in makeshift boats, aerial photographs and installations by artists such as Ramal Hazume use the slave ship icon to position and or to lend a certain urgency to their depictions. Even illustrated children's books published for the American Girl Doll franchise have shown an early version of the slave ship icon to discuss the life of Felicity, a young girl whose lifetime is set on the plantation during slavery. Dr. David Driscoll, the venerable historian of African-American art, owns a gold bracelet designed by Robert Crosland of Hyattsville, Maryland, which he regularly wears. And at Swan Galleries and Auction House in New York, their annual auctions of African-Americana held since 1998 have sold examples of the slave ship icon taken from abolitionist tracts and books. In the February 2010 auction, three different versions were offered for sale with estimates ranging from $300 to $2,500. And I would say now, just as an aside, Wanda, that today if you were to try to purchase one of these original uh, engravings from the 18th or 19th centuries at auction, many of which have been mm -hmm. stolen out of books, they're, they're cut out with um, X-Acto knives, they sell for upwards of $20,000 at auction. So regardless of commercialization, this image continues to inflict a psychic impact on the black, brown, and white people who wear it, view it, and in other ways consume it. And despite the evident and ongoing generative power of this image, its visual and cultural history, told from the point of view of art history and African-American studies, has remained largely untold until now. What about the graphic quality of the slave ship icon enables it to continue to have resonance for us today? What has compelled artists and curators to use it as a visual memory aid and a teaching tool? Why is there an urgent need for ordinary people to attempt to embody it, to revisit the terror it represents, to reenact its profound silence and pain? How has the symbolic possession of the past through the use of the slave ship icon shaped an artistic practice of mnemonic aesthetics among an increasing number of African diaspora artists, architects, and cultural innovators? In this first ever art historical study to illustrate the significance of this image in the Black Atlantic imagination, I have set out to answer these questions. By unpacking the contents of the hold, so to speak, we can begin to understand how the slave ship icon has stood as a template for the historical memory of the Middle Passage for visual artists around the Black Atlantic. Um, so ah. the, the last thing I'll, I'll say, <laughs> hope that wasn't too much, too much, but that's kind of a, a precursor to what, what follows. Um, the book it mm -hmm. is, um, as Lee said, it really is beautifully illustrated, and I can't say enough about the production team at Princeton University Press, my editor, Michelle Comey, and the many people who worked on putting this book together. 
Um, there are over 150 illustrations um, included in color and in black and white. And I would also be remiss if I did not mention the generosity of the artists and the archivists and the librarians um, who helped me uh, with my research and also many of the artists um, who very generously um, gave of their work uh, um, in, in the book. So I was really, really excited to see when I was in London uh, just um, last week when I went to preview uh, the exhibition I mentioned, Get Up, Stand Up Now, I saw, mm -hmm. I think, about three of the works that are in my book in the exhibition there, um, including um, a poster. Yeah, it's great. So there's a poster by Keith Piper, um, which was a poster for an exhibition called Past in Perfect Future Tense. Um, for an exhibition that was at the Black Art Gallery in London in 1985, um, a historic exhibition. And then there are a couple of other images, a work by um, um, a Trinidadian-born uh, photographer, um, Horace Ove, um, who, uh, who has many, many photographs and films. So he's a filmmaker as well. Um, his work is in that exhibition there, too. So, um, yeah, it's... it's I'm, I'm, I'm happy and I'm very proud. Uh, I'm going to address one last question that you had answered. And uh, I've been doing some work over the past uh, two to three years with uh, the University of Johannesburg. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I was there in early May for a conference and a book launch, um, which was really exciting. Um, and it gave me the opportunity not just to um, introduce the book to scholars and uh, to the larger audience in, 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 um, in South Africa, in Johannesburg, but also to think about it in a different context. For some time, I've been interested in not just the slave trade across the Atlantic Ocean, but also the slave trade as it occurred in the Indian Ocean. Um, and mm -hmm. I've, I've been to a conference about that um, in 2000, I think it was about five years ago, 2000. 14. Um, I've done some research in the island of Mauritius, which is um, in the Indian Ocean, uh, a couple hours from Madagascar. And when I was in Johannesburg recently, um, I had the great opportunity to meet with uh, some scholars who were doing similar work, and, and they're also doing it under the rubric of what they're calling deep ocean studies. So kind of not just thinking about um, the history as it relates to you know, the point of embarkation or, or, um, or, or where one lands, um, but also thinking about the, the, the route of the Middle Passage in a different way and literally through, you know, through the water and through the sea and what that means in terms of what we find um, uh, in terms of artifacts and relics um, beneath the ocean, you know, be, beneath the, the ocean surface, the water surface. So one of the installations at the um, African-American Museum in Washington that, that begins the narrative uh, of the Middle Passage is of a uh, Portuguese slave ship that was uh, found, a shipwreck, off of the coast of, of South Africa. And, um, and there's a, a, you know, a, a deep knowledge about that, of course, in South Africa. And so one of the things that I'm, I'm thinking about in terms of how I might take this research in other directions is to think about more deeply um, the Indian Ocean Slave Trade and Deep Ocean Studies. The prize that my book won, I just found out about this, I think, when I landed in San Francisco um, for the book talk mm -hmm. with Lee and Andrew. Mm -hmm. And it's called uh, the Horowitz Prize. It's given uh, by Bard College Graduate Center in New York for the best book um, in design and material culture. 
And um, mm. one of the great gifts of this prize is is the ability to um, organize a conference around one's research. And so I'll be oh, doing that. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Sorry for interrupting you, but yeah. that is phenomenal. Ooh. Yeah. Thank I you. am so coming. Yeah. Oh, so, wow. so I congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm really I'm I'm humbled and I'm honored. But but what I like is that you know you actually this this type of prize gives one the opportunity to continue one's research to do something more right. with it and also to to collaborate. So I'm I'm really excited about the opportunity and I'm I, I think I need to probably call them and and figure out what the date is going to be. We're still trying to figure that out. But I I have some ideas mm-hmm. about what I want to do and um and mm-hmm. I'm excited for the opportunity. So thank you so much. Oh, yeah. oh, you're welcome. This has been a really wonderful extended conversation, and, you know, I hope to have others, particularly, you know, um, talking about, you know, this conference that you're going to be organizing around your research, and I'm also interested in any um, tours you might arrange for those of us that aren't at um, Spelman College. <laughs> that would be really well, you cool. Know, I, to, like, go on. Listen, hmm. we can talk about it. I, I will let you know. Okay. I'm gonna When I hang up, I'm going to hit send, and I'll send you the list of all the shows that I was talking about. Um, but the other thing <laughs> okay. I was going to say is I've, I've, I've always been interested in travel and tourism, and one of the things that I realized, hmm. you know, we had, and I, we had a loose itinerary. Some things were fixed. And then we had ideas about doing some other things. And then, you know, sometimes you get you get to a place and all of a sudden you realize once you hit the ground, there's certain things happening that you don't know about. Sometimes you just run right. into something or another. And um, and I'm I'm at a point right now where I'd love to be able to kind of make tours like this happen on the regular. So um, I'll, I'll keep you posted cool. about that because um, it was a lot of Alrighty. fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, sounds like it. Wow, well, continue, okay. continue, you know, success on all of your great projects and so happy to kind of be in the loop. So this is awesome. And thank you again for spending time with us, you know, on the air today. I'm really looking forward to listening to this again because it was so dense and so rich. Good. I hope so. Thank you so much, Wanda. Oh, okay. definitely it was. All right. <laughs> all right, you take good care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. All right, peace. Bye. Peace and blessings. So we're going to close with um, the Soweto Gospel Choir's Grace, and this is for um, for uh, Dr. Finley and also for Dr. Rayford. It's a really beautiful song um, performed by the Soweto Gospel Choir. <laughs> 